you got to have faith. You just need to believe. How many of us have heard that? All of us have. We've been on this earth. What do we mean by that? What does the world mean by that? What do Christians mean by that? What does God's word mean by that? Well, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we read the following. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk is a prophet who lived during the time of Jeremiah and prophesied as the nation was being taken away to Babylon. The format of the book of Habakkuk is more a conversation between God and the prophet Habakkuk where the prophet asks the difficult questions many of us may ask. In fact, in the first chapter, Habakkuk asks, Where are you, God, when I need and call for help? You ever been there? You ever been so alone in your heart that you're wondering if God is listening? Well, that's the question that Habakkuk asks. Habakkuk also asks another question. He says, why does it seem like the wicked prosper over the righteous? I know a lot of Christians are asking that question right now. Why is this keep happening, Lord? Why do the wicked get to keep prospering? Why does it seem like there's no win for us? And then he also asks the question that's on many people's minds. Is justice ever going to come? Is justice ever going to come? Well, you see, God's response is given in chapter 2 where we find the infamous phrase that so many of us are familiar with. The just shall live by his faith. This is not the only part of the Bible that mentions this phrase. And many of you are saying, well, I already know what faith is. And you may well know what that is. But the question is, do you have the definition that God has in his word? Or do you have your own preconceived idea? This phrase is vital in scripture because it's repeated in other books of the Bible. What gives us further insight as to what it means to live by faith. None of the least of the texts that we are very familiar with is the Faith Hall of Faith, right? The one in Hebrews 11 where we see different lives that are transformed by God and they live in faith. Today we'll be specifically looking at texts where this particular phrase is mentioned and how it's expounded to help us get a better grasp of what it means to live by faith. If you look at the book of Romans, you see that Romans emphasizes the gospel of the just. Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
You see, Paul was very familiar with this text in Habakkuk, as many of the Jewish audience would have been. It's significant that Romans 1.17 contains two nearly identical Greek words to distress the idea of righteousness and just conduct. The, the word is translated the righteousness of God in a broader sense, state of him who is, who is as he ought to be, the condition acceptable to God. The condition to be acceptable to God is only one that God himself can meet. You and I, if we know any of Scripture, we know that the Old Testament author tells us that our righteousness has filthy rags. We don't have the standard that needs to be met. In fact, integrity, virtue, purity of life, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting is what is expected. And every one of us has fallen short in every one of those. The just or the righteous that's referred to in verse 17 is the one that is observing the divine law in a wide sense, upright, righteous, virtuous, keeping the commands of God. And the only way that you and I can keep the commands of God is by the Spirit of God, which is one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit has to awaken our hearts first. Because everything that we do in trying to attempt to do what God's Word says will be futile and worthless before Christ. Christ is the reason why we have righteousness applied to our account. He lived the perfect life that we can't live. He died the death that we deserve. He was resurrected to prove that he has power over sin and death. A lot of us talk about death a lot, but a lot of us as believers don't believe that Jesus really rescued us from the power of sin. In fact, the gospel removes from us the following. First of all, it removes the guilt of sin. When we come to faith in Christ, we have a guilt before him. And it's passed down all the way to our father, Adam, from our father, Adam. Right from the beginning, we are guilty as charged based on being born in sin. By nature, children of wrath as others. We stand condemned. The gospel also removes from us the power of sin. Sin can no longer control us, though many Christians still prefer the chains. Many believers really don't have enough faith to believe that they really can be free of the sin that they're struggling with. And no, it's not a name and claim it. There are real struggles we all have to endure. Paul the Apostle writes about them himself. But for us to not believe that is not taking God at his word. And unfortunately, a lot of believers start with the premise of being a loser rather than a conqueror. Because we failed God so many times, we tend to not believe anymore that he can do what he can. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've given up because you struggle so much. Maybe getting to church this morning was a struggle for you. Maybe you're watching this online going, listen, I couldn't make it out to church. That still doesn't negate the fact that Christ has set us free. He's the one that gives us victory. And I want to encourage you, if you ever come to the Lord broken, hurting, not sure how you can carry on, that he is there and he is willing to pick you back up. He is dear to his children. He cares for his own. 
the Savior is a good shepherd. I really loved how it was aligned last week. We were reading through Psalm 23 as we finished up the first month with our kids. And just the direct tie-in to Jesus being the good shepherd. Right? Everybody reads Psalm 23 at funerals. It's kind of the, the typical text that everyone reads, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Right? How many believers really believe that? That the rod and staff comfort them? How many of us really believe that the good shepherd cares for us and sometimes it hurts because he's trying to direct us in the right way? How many of us believe that the father disciplines us and he cares because he does? You see, the gospel removes us from the guilt of sin, the power of sin. It also removes us from the presence of sin, and that is in the future. This happens in the eternal state or the city, New Jerusalem, when we get to participate in that where sin will no longer be present in our midst. Wouldn't that be the day? Wouldn't that be the day to go, man, I'm not struggling with this anymore. Here's the, here's the opposite sometimes of faith, right? Anxiety, worry, goodness gracious, that would be wonderful, right? Like, man, you could truly live in faith. Because here's, here's the truth there that we miss sometimes. Faith really becomes sight then. The very Jesus that you and I believe and trust today, we will see face to face. We will worship with the saints in glory. I think the, the song truly carries this idea, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. That's when it's all said and done and sin has no longer the presence around us. We no longer are tempted by the flesh. We are no longer tempted by the world. We're no longer tempted by Satan and his minions. But Galatians also emphasizes the faith of the just. Galatians 3, 10 through 14 says this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, Galatians gives us the idea of trusting God rather than trusting self. It's amazing how many of us as believers start the, the path of faith trusting fully in what Jesus has accomplished only to take back what we say we believe. Oh Lord, I trust you with my eternity, but I will not trust you with today. How strange is that? How strange is it that we believe God for anything outside of this life but in the here and now, we're like, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can believe you, Lord, that you're really going to do something here. I mean, God, you know how messed up I am? Oh, he does. Hence, Jesus. He knows. The remedy has been given. And that remedy is not you and me. So stop basing your performance as the standard. 
Don't even take another brother or sister as the standard, ultimately. It's Jesus who is the standard. And he's the only one that can do it perfectly. For a person to reach heaven based on their own doing, they must never commit a single sin. And every one of us, naturally, without our parents teaching us, lied. Our parents, our parents never sat us down and said, hey, all right, listen, here's how you do this. Junior, when someone asks you something and they confront you, double down. If you don't, admit you did it. Nobody had to do that, did they? It's natural. We lie. In fact, Scripture says that men are liars, which is one of the reasons why we need the truth. And what does Jesus say in John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is found in him. It's not found in us. No one except for Jesus can approach God on this basis. We must trust in God and in Christ rather than self. In fact, in the book of Romans and Galatians, Paul declares that justification by faith is the antithesis of justification by law. Keeping of the law in and of ourselves will never justify us before God. You can take the list of Ten Commandments and claim that you've done them well, just like the rich young ruler did when he approached Jesus, and say, I'm doing what I need to, and there's debate whether he meant what he said or he said, I knew how to take care of it when I did sin. There's a debate there, but the bottom line is he thought he was better than he really was. And many of us approach God with that attitude even as believers. Like, God, I'm owed this because look at how good I've been. I've been a good boy and girl. Daddy, aren't you proud? Look at my performance. And others of us we're so embarrassed, so ashamed that we don't believe we can talk to our Father. The reality is both of us, both categories need Him. Whether you're struggling with sin or whether you think you've arrived, you still need the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees were blinded to their own faults. They viewed themselves as perfect models of obedience. They foolishly trusted in themselves rather than in God. In fact, John Newton says, this is faith, a renouncing of everything we're apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood, righteousness, and intercession of Jesus. If you looked at Luke 18, 9 through 14, you'll see this interaction that Jesus has in this narrative about a Pharisee and a tax collector, a publican. Starting in verse 9, it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Uh, brothers and sisters, that should not be our attitude. That's the most that we are like Pharisees when we do this. We're just like, Lord, I didn't do what they're doing. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, 
would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One of the sure ways that you and I can be humbled in this life is by being proud of who we are. Being proud of our performance, being proud of where we've come in the sense of giving ourselves too much credit. There should be moments in your life that you look back in your journey of faith and you're grateful what God has taken you from. That's not what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is this false bravado that we have sometimes as believers, that we assume we've arrived because we're doing something better than someone else. And by the way, if you're reading that text and going, well, you know, the Pharisee is the one that gave and fasted and all that, that means we shouldn't do that. No, Jesus still recommended those and strongly urged those. Don't take what it's not saying and twist it in your head. That's misapplying scripture. What Jesus was getting at is the heart behind what you're doing matters. The false bravado, the, the pharisaical, I'm more righteous than I really am, is what Jesus is talking about here. You see, Jesus came to fulfill the law perfectly, and in turn gave us the righteousness that we could never earn through his death and resurrection. Jesus became sin, so we would no longer be bound by sin in the law. This, sin is not, this faith is simply not a belief that we would think of sometimes in the illustration that we use in Awana clubs as just sitting on the chair and believing that it'll hold me. It's more than that. You are a dead sinner that needs to be raised to life. I love the analogies that people helped us with, but sometimes they miss the point of what faith is. Faith is a full reliance on him because I've got nothing. I've got nothing in and of myself. He's the only one that can save us from our sin. Spurgeon said, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of him upon whom you rely. Christ is able to save you if you come to him. Be your faith weak or be it strong. Believer, that's, I think, where we really go wrong sometimes. We think that someone else has a stronger faith than we do. When simply... They just believe Jesus more than you do. That's really the difference. Hebrews also emphasizes the life of the just. Hebrews 10, 36 through 39, we read this. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul shall has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Hebrews gives the idea that faith is for the long haul. The just shall live by faith. Faith is not a singular event where we just trust Jesus once and we live our lives the way we please. And that is what's taught in churches today. You walk the aisle, you're good. Don't worry about anything else. You're in. That is not the faith of Scripture. 
That is the faith of modern evangelicalism that wants a bunch of converts that they quickly dip in water and pretend that they're saved. The faith that Scripture talks about is a faith that endures. Doesn't mean it doesn't falter, doesn't mean that people don't sin, doesn't mean that people don't struggle. It's a faith that endures. The perseverance in faith is what needs to be there. We are saved the moment we trust Christ, but that faith is not staying put. It moves on with us. We walk with Christ. There's a way of living that is accompanied by that call for Christ. Those who bear fruit with endurance... Eternal life belongs to those who patiently continue in doing good. In Romans chapter 2, we read this. Paul is literally condemning all of humanity and says the following, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you judge, practice, you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory honor and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. This is a text that so many people avoid when they think of what does my conduct really matter or not when I'm a believer. It does. Believer, if you're not finding yourself repenting of sin frequently, then you need to pause. And you need to consider if you are in Christ. We all have seasons that we walk away from our God. We all do. You have testimony of that throughout Scripture, of those that Walked by faith, but still walked away at times, came back. Peter is a prime example in the New Testament. Everyone can relate to Peter. But the difference between Peter and Judas is Peter's faith was restored. He went back and did what God called him to. Believer, before you were saved, sin separated you from God. After salvation, God commands that you separate from sin. Your relationship to sin should be different. And if it isn't, there's a problem. 
So, I like to, when I think of some phrase or I think of what Scripture is trying to impress, is think of what is Scripture not saying, so I'm making sure that I'm not misappropriating what the text says. So I want to kind of go through a few of these, and you've probably heard these before, but what living by faith is not. First of all, living by faith is not just sitting back and just trusting the Lord. I'm just going to get to coast in my life. It'll all work out at the end. Like, I don't have to get up and read the Bible, I'll just do what I need to do. What's the point of prayer? God's already got it figured out. That's a lot of Christians. That might be you. Faith is lived out. It's not some mystical feeling of comfort we get that it's all just going to work out at the end. It's one of the reasons why be careful to the, with the phrases that the world throws at you that you think are the same thing that the Bible means by it. You just need to have faith. Faith in what? That matters. If we're just talking about faith being some magical instrument that God wants us to use, what is that in? The source has to be Him, not in my self-reliance. I mean, you know how many people go through this life with faith in themselves? You know how many Christians have been bought into the psychology of the day and really just believe exactly what the world does, not realizing that Scripture means something totally different? It makes us no different than the unsaved world if we live that way. We are to regard God's instructions concerning money, marriage, family, ministry. All those things, if we want to live by faith, need to be defined by the Word of God. It's not a wing it mentality. Find me anything in the New Testament where Paul talks about the Christian life where he says, just wing it, it'll work out at the end. No, he has references to war. He has references to building, the body growing together, working together. None of it's a wing it mentality. What living by faith is also not, it's not living comfortably because our sins are forgiven. You don't abuse grace. That is not living by faith. The opposite is true. We're at war. And if we do not engage, we are not living by faith. God does comfort us, but does not ever tell us to stop fighting sin when we've been hurt by sin. You see, some Christians find comfort in the fact that they're sinners, so they're proud of that. Your identity is a saint, not a sinner anymore, brother and sister. Where sin abound, grace did much more abound. And the goal is not to sin more so grace abounds more. The goal is to truly live in your Christian life to please the one who saved you. And I want to pause for a moment and say something. I know some of you, you're on the other extreme on this one. What living by faith is also not doing is getting to the point of depression where you feel like you can never find hope again. That is not living by faith. Because Jesus really did pay it all. Your performance is not the qualifier. His was and is. Not just when you first trusted him, but even today when you fail him again. This is the tension that we have to live in, believer. Or we know that Christ has called us to holiness, but we're still going to sin. 
You need to be able to hold those tensions in your Christian life, else you fall into complete despair, or you just completely live callously. And you need to be able to hold that balance in place. What living by faith is not is something that only very spiritual people do. Well, only the spiritual people, they really live by faith. <laughs> it's not me. They have faith. I don't really have faith. I just kind of go through my life, do my thing. The truth is the concepts talked about throughout Scripture, regular, everyday people live by faith. For example, Noah believed that there would be a flood before rain ever came. I mean, I've seen the memes on Facebook. They're good, right? Like, oh, he believed it before it even happened. Do you believe God before it happens? Do you believe that God has called you to live in faith, not just the pastor, not just the leaders in the church? Gideon stepped up to lead even though he was terrified at first. In fact, Gideon was hiding when God calls him out and says, you mighty man of valor. You're talking about me? Kind of a wimp right now. But he acted in faith. Then you have Rahab, a prostitute, someone everyone else would have looked down on, that God rescues in Jericho. Live by faith. So, believer, what are some practical ways that you and I can live by faith even today? Because I believe this is so important that we need to be reminded of this all the time. Here's some few examples here. Living by faith will be evident in our actions and feelings. Galatians 5, through 26, many of us are familiar with this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. A lot of people quote all the, you know, fruit of the Spirit text. They don't read the verses after. Like, here's the contrast, don't do this. And then the verses before that, works of the flesh are contrasting this. Here, here's a big one in the church that I think would really impact us tremendously. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 this is the New Living Translation. Get rid of all bitterness rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, like here's the stuff you don't do, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. That's radical transformation. That's living by faith when the world says, ah, they owe you one. You owe it to them. Give it back. Double down. Living by faith will produce an inner self-control, peace, and endurance because those feelings are in line with the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, if you want to be the most like Jesus, you might want to take his cue on the cross. What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You and I are the most like Jesus when our actions reflect him that seem crazy to everybody else in the world.
Living by faith will be evident in our view of ourselves before God. It's another text that if you really zoom out and see the whole context, it really paints a different picture than many sometimes draw from the text. In Luke 12, 4 through 7, Jesus makes the statement. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And some people will just stop there. But the next verse says this. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. What a contrast. Fear God who can do more than just kill you in this life, cast you into hell, and then, wait a second, you're more valuable than sparrows. God, how does that work together? That's our God. You need to have a reverential fear for God, knowing who he is and what he has the power to do, while at the same time knowing you're precious in his sight. And too many believers live on one extreme of the perspective of God or the other. They don't have both. A lot of Christians like the God is gracious, loves me the way I am approach, and then others are like God is always out there to get us. He's just the cosmic killjoy. Knowing God has the ultimate authority will matter in our fear of him. And it's balanced by the fact that even with his majesty as a king, he cares for his own. That the king would lay his life down for his subjects is unheard of. When he had the power to condemn. That's the gospel. He won't leave us or forsake us. He has eternity in his hand. When we see that God holds us valuable, we will view life so differently. It should make you pause as a believer to realize that God never needed to save you. You never deserved it. But that he did willingly send his son, the Lord Jesus, on your behalf and my behalf. And that you are precious to him. Yes, you're a sinner, you're a worm, but God calls you his son, his daughter. We need to pause and think about that more often. So many Christians beat themselves up over what they look like, how much money they make, what people think of them, losing the only thing that really matters, the value found in Christ. Why we pursue everything else is beyond me, because I do the same thing. What are people going to think of me in this church? What is so-and-so going to do when I approach them about what God wants me to do? What's going to happen if I don't say it this way? Oh, we've all had those thoughts. We've thought about them many times. And then you just pause and think, you know what? The God of heaven cares about that person who's a brother or sister in Christ, and he cares about me. 
The statement is made to Je- by Jesus to his disciples to show them that God is the only opinion that really matters. Believer, if you were to live by faith, then God's opinion matters most. So take any topic, just do this application. If, you're think- if you forget everything else in the sermon, just do this one application this week, okay? Any topic you can think of, money, relationships, um, health, all that, right? Take any topic you can think of, and instead of running through the lens of what psychology says, science says, all that stuff, say, okay, what does God's word say on this? And readjust. One of the things that I really got convicted over is my own personal health, and that's biblically the reason I'm addressing that. Not just because so-and-so said it, but because there are things that God calls me to be an example in that I'm thinking, well, that's not a big deal. God has the final say. And if he has the final say, he should have the final say today, not just in eternity. Too many Christians think, I'll obey God later. God, I struggle too much now, I can't do it. Don't quit. Get back up. Pursue. Chase after God. He is willing to help the weak. He's not looking at us as if we have it all together. He's going, I've given you the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. That's what you need to rely on. Stop relying on the flesh to do what only the Spirit can do. What he says matters more than our restless anxieties in this life. And then living by faith will be evident over the long haul. We read this when we went through the study in 1 John. 1 John 3, 7 through 10 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. One of the areas that I will never apologize for as a pastor, ever, ever, ever apologize is when I see a brother or sister at odds with each other that don't want to work it out, and I'm going to tell them that they need to. It's not because I just need you to be easier for me to deal with in the church as a pastor, although that does help. It's because God's Word calls us to that. And when there's conflict and things that come up between people and people don't want to deal with it, what they're literally saying is, I don't want to act in faith on this one, God. I'll take care of it my way. So I'm going to be very, very open about this. What this text is not saying is that we don't sin ever. What it's saying is the new nature that we have in Christ does not sin. And that means that there are certain things that are evidenced by our love for one another in the church. If you and I are to live as God calls us to live, that means we've got to do the hard things that we don't want to do. And I'm going to pause for a moment make a statement that May not come across the right way, but I'm trying my best to be gracious in the way I address this. But I want to say this. From the pulpit, it's very hard sometimes because you don't know the heart behind what I say sometimes, and you're taking it the wrong way, some of you. 
The reason I have desired in this church for certain things to get addressed is not because I really enjoy the work of doing that. I don't. It tears me up inside. I have anxiety like you wouldn't believe over certain things I know God wants me to deal with in this church and in my own life. But I do know that at the other end of that is a joy that only God can give. But those things need to be done. And so when brothers and sisters are at odds with one another, those of us that are spiritual should seek to restore that. When you're away from the body and you're not participating, we want you in closer to the body, not further away. If you're repulsed by someone saying, please, we want to spend more time with you, then you're not understanding their heart. Let me put it practically speaking. A husband and a wife, they don't spend time together, they're not going to feel close. The church is the body of Christ. We need to be spending time with one another. There should be a unity in these areas. Not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. I really am encouraged when I see a brother or sister post something on Facebook. Yeah, spending time with this person, spending time with That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. And let me, let me strike at the heart of th- something that might feel a little more uncomfortable. Invite somebody you haven't invited out. Spend time with people you never even considered inviting out. See if God doesn't do something through that. Neil Anderson says this. He says, the interchange justification is effected at the moment of salvation. The outer change in the believer's daily walk, sanctification, continues throughout life. But the progressive work of sanctification is only fully effective when the radical inner transformation of justification is realized and appropriated by faith. So church, the question for you and me as we finish this morning is, how is your walk of faith? How is your walk of faith? Maybe you're watching this and you don't have a walk of faith. You don't even know who Jesus is because you've never trusted him. That's the first step. You can't walk with Jesus until you trusted him for your salvation. The first step is trusting the gospel message that Jesus came, lived a perfect life that you and I can't, died on our behalf, was buried, rose again the third day, proving that he conquered sin and death, and he asks us to trust him and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a child of God, but living by faith has been difficult for you lately. As we've said before, it's easier to believe for everybody else, right? Well, God, I know you can do these things for them. For me, ugh, I'm a mess. You're right. You are a mess. We're all a mess. This is why Jesus needed to be what we need. He's the solution. Maybe you've kind of coasted, hoping it will all work out at the end. Can I encourage you to stop doing something that is very dangerous? Look, if you're coasting your spiritual walk, that's a very dangerous place to be. And I don't apologize for saying it because Scripture is clear on that. In fact, faith that's been shipwrecked is very dangerous. A lot of people start off well, but then it goes bad for them. And here's what happens. 
Stuff in this life replaces your dependence on Him. Here's a way you can tell if you've possibly been coasting. You're relying on the stuff, not Him. You're relying on your skills, not Him. You're relying on your personality, not Him. You're relying on other people, not Him. Here's another dangerous way that our faith may be shipwrecked is our conscience has been seared. This is a, such a dangerous thing to be in this state. It's heartbreaking when you see people whose conscience has been seared that are believers that have walked with God for many years and they do not repent of certain things they need to repent of. Hymenaeus and Alexander fell into this trap that Paul describes. They didn't have a good conscience before God anymore. Believer, let me, let me take it a step further. If there are things that used to bother you that you knew were wrong before God, but they don't bother you anymore, you might have been coasting in certain areas. Another way that we know that is by going back to sin as a comfort. Many believers do that. We all like to see something comfort us, and sometimes that comfort's not found in the Holy Spirit, it's found in a sin that we really enjoy, because this makes me happy, temporarily, and then I fall apart shortly after. It's a quick fix, right? It's like the drug addict going back to that drug, hoping they get that next high that really will take them another level, only to realize that after that high, it's absolutely miserable. That's what happens with sin. We take it further and further, and before you know it, we're absolutely devastated. And things around us start crumbling. You need to bring it out to the light so that there can be freedom. Believer, I will say this. There will be no condemnation from any of us in this church, and if there is, it will be called out. If a brother or sister needs to repent in certain areas, we are going to be there to help them. There's not going to be condemnation for the brother or sister that says, you know what, brothers... Sisters, I've been really struggling with this. I haven't brought it up to anybody, but I really need help here. The moment that you and I can bring that sin to the light is the moment it loses a lot of that control that it has over us. And this is an area I want, I want to truly be open about. Discipleship groups, when we had them with, with some of the younger men in this church, um, those guys know a lot of my life because I've shared it with them in ways that maybe some of you don't know. But I didn't share those things with them just so, you know, you know it's a, a meeting just to share our feelings and thoughts, which is what people misconstrue discipleship to be, which is garbage. That's not what it is. Discipleship is essentially doing life together in every way. Discipleship is saying, brother, sister, hey, listen, something's been going on. Can you pray for me? Or discipleship is, hey, here's what we're reading together. What do you think? What do you think about this? That's discipleship. Discipleship is not, here are my thoughts on what I think I should do in my life. Discipleship is, what does God's word say, and am I doing that? Can you tell me if I'm doing that, brother, sister? What do you think? Now, here's an even more dare, daring one. <laughs> Men, try this one at home. Honey, how am I doing spiritually? Am I leading the home? How am I in dealing with the kids? How's the discipline at home? Daring questions to ask. Maybe your attitude just stinks. And it's not God honoring. 
Christ exalted, spirit-filled whatsoever. Maybe you came to church with completely the wrong attitude. Repent. Ask God for forgiveness. You're not, you're not pleasing anybody else here. You may be exhausted. You might be overwhelmed. The desire isn't there to build the body. But sometimes only to destroy what Christ has built because the flesh takes over. When we don't get our way, we're not looking to benefit others. We're looking to benefit ourselves. And sometimes we do it at the expense of stepping on people. Your heart, instead of joy, is miserable. Instead of peace, wants war. Instead of self-control, lacks restraint. Saying everything on your mind is not a spiritual gift. You're like, but you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. Look, that's me as a pastor. Not everything that's in my mind needs to come out of my mouth. It doesn't. Neither does everything that's on your mind need to come out. A life of faith trusts God when it comes to struggle with sin, knowing that God will always provide a way of escape. Do you believe that, believer, that God will always provide a way of escape or not? How is it that you can believe Christ for eternity, but you can't believe him in the present here and now? Why? Why is that the case? Because you're looking at your own performance. That's why. Man, I just failed last week. Didn't spend the time that I ought to. I, I was intentional. I was going to do this. I was going to get to be more a prayer warrior again. It didn't happen. Well, today is an opportunity. Today is the day you can start again. You can win in the battle against sin, believer. Because Jesus has already overcome. We sing about it all the time. It's time to believe what we sing in practice, in our lives. If Christ has conquered sin, then we ought to live like that. Your marriage can be something God can still redeem. God wants his children to reflect the gospel. Believer, God can still save those people you've been praying for. Don't quit just because it's been a while. Don't quit praying for people. Don't quit. D.L. Moody said this. He said, there are three kinds of faith in Christ. I thought this was brilliant. Number one, struggling faith, like a man in deep water desperately swimming. Number two, clinging faith, like a man hanging to the side of a boat. And number three, resting faith, like a man safely within the boat and able to reach out with a hand to help someone else get in. We're all in different places when it comes to those categories. Faith without its source in God means nothing. Don't think that just believing something to be true makes it so. That is not faith. A.W. Tozer says this in closing, true faith rests upon the character of God and asks no further proof than the moral perfections of the one who cannot lie. It is enough that God has said it.